Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy conversation about grief. This event has been co-organized with Professor Laura Carl O'Malica in connection with her AHRC Leadership Fellows Project on Performance Philosophy and animals. At various points in our lives, we all experience grief. But what exactly is grief? What have philosophers said about it? Why do we grieve? And is there such a thing as good grief? These are some of the questions we'll be addressing during our discussion. My name is Sarah Fine. I'm a fellow at the Forum for Philosophy, and I teach philosophy at the University of Cambridge. I'm delighted to introduce our tremendous panel. Michael Cholby is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. His fascinating book, Grief, A Philosophical Guide, is coming soon with Princeton University Press. Will Daddario is a teacher, philosopher, and grief worker who's published widely on grief, and co-hosts to Grieve, a podcast on the subject. Priya Jay is a writer and curator. Her work on grief has included facilitating grief gatherings with fevered sleep. Thank you so much for sharing your work and your time with us. Let me also say a very warm welcome to our audience. We'll leave plenty of time for questions. Those listening along on Zoom can type questions in the Q&A box. And we'll also be looking out for questions from our Facebook Live audience. And of course, please do feel free to tweet along tonight with us on the hashtag LSE Forum. And now we begin. We're going to open with the question, what is grief? And Michael, would you mind getting us started with this one? I'd be happy to. So one of the challenges I think we face when we try to understand grief is that it is a very rich and emotionally textured experience. And philosophers haven't said all that much about grief historically, but I think when we think about the nature of grief, the conclusion we should reach is that it's a kind of emotionally driven attention to loss. So if people know anything about grief in our audience, my guess is that they know the famous five-stage model of grieving put forth by uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in the 1960s and 70s. That model says that grief involves a sequence of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, subsequent research, I think, has shown that that's not actually uh, a very common pattern in people's grief. Many of us don't undergo all of those five, or we undergo other emotions in addition to those five, or we don't undergo them in that particular order. But I think when we reflect upon what's going on when we're grieving, what we're doing is we're paying attention to something. And we're paying attention in a very emotionally rich way. So when someone who matters to us in a particular way dies, I think we are prompted to pay attention to that fact. That fact uh, occupies to a disproportionate degree our consciousness and our day-to-day -day awareness of ourselves and how we're going about living our lives. So I think that's a good starting point, but of course it doesn't tell us all that much about what exactly it is that we are grieving for, right? When we say that we're paying attention to the loss, what is the loss? 
Well, one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is just how many different kinds of individuals we can grieve for. I suppose our paradigm cases that come to mind when we think about grief are the uh, experiences that we have at the deaths of, say, spouses, siblings, parents, loved ones. But of course, we also grieve people who are perhaps less intimate to us. Um, I think we've seen in the past several years, for example, that there is a very real phenomenon of people grieving the deaths of celebrities online, pop musicians, Prince, David Bowie, and so on. And I think when we reflect upon all the individuals that we grieve for, it's a little hard maybe to see the common thread in all of those grieving experiences. But I think there is a common thread. Very roughly, I think the common thread is that we grieve people in whom we have invested our own identities. I think we grieve people who we uh, think of as essential to the story that we tell about ourselves. And of course, people can be essential to the stories that uh, uh, we tell about ourselves in different ways. Obviously, our parents, our children, our siblings are essential to the stories that we tell about ourselves because we care about them, we love them, we're intimate with them. But other people can be essential to the story that we tell about ourselves because, say, we uh, emulate them. If there is, say, a uh, famous artist whose techniques we uh, try to follow or a political leader whose uh, accomplishments we uh, um, admire or whose ideology we favor. So I think in the end, uh, the best thing we can say is that it, it is a um, grief is a state of emotional attention that is directed at a loss, right, where the loss is prompted by the death of someone in whom we've invested ourselves. And I think this is uh, a pretty plausible account. And I think it also explains how there's an aspect of grief that is not just about sadness, but also about the feeling that one has lost one's way in the world, that the world doesn't seem quite the same as it used to be, and that perhaps you don't quite recognize yourself or the world uh, when you're in the midst of grief. Wonderful. Thank you, Michael. That gets us off to a really fascinating start. I wonder if I can just ask you something about your picture of grief there. So you mentioned or you, you said that grief is about the death of people in our lives. Is Are you deliberately leaving out um, non-human animals or other kind of objects of grief? And is it only about death or can we grieve um, about other kinds of experiences? Yes, thanks for that. So um, I focus primarily in my work on uh, the grief we experience at the deaths of others because I think there are some distinctive features of that. But I'm very happy to acknowledge that people feel grief bona fide grief at the deaths of, say, their pets, or uh, in some sense, the destruction of certain kinds of relationships they might have. It's been noted by some in psychology that uh, some of the emotional reactions that are found in grief are often sometimes found in, for example, divorce. Um, so uh, I don't want to cordon off grief, um, that the, the grief that we experience at the deaths of others from other kinds of um, uh, grief-like experiences or grief experiences. I do think there's something distinctive about um, the grief that we experience as a consequence of others' deaths because their deaths are very final, right? They sort of um, put an end in a certain way to an important chapter in our relationship with them. And furthermore, I think that there's a bit of um, a kind of a shiver, right, that, that goes through us uh, with respect to the, the grief we experience at the deaths of others because, of course, it also reminds us that we ourselves are mortal. And just as um, we depend upon other people, right, for uh, our projects and concerns and the things that give our lives meaning. Uh, the fact that they can um, 
you know, die and, and, and leave our lives is also a reminder that everything that we care about, including even ourselves, is ultimately fragile and vulnerable. So I think that, you know, I don't want, again, want to uh, separate out the, the particular form of grief uh, that we experience at, at the, uh, as a result of others' deaths from others. But I do think it has some distinctive properties that, that um, merit paying special attention to it. Thanks very much, Michael. And I'd like to bring in Priya here. Priya, what is grief? Um, as, a, as a writer, I've really struggled to find the right words for grief. Um, and both Michael and Will are also writers, and I'm sure that they've had their own like tussles with language um, to be able to wrap around this seemingly universal, seemingly pervasive emotion. Um, but the, the, what I've come to is that grief is a shapeshifter. <laughs> and in, in saying that I've been able to evade um, this need to put a form onto it. Um, and in, the, in, the, in a mythical sense, the shapeshifter is the, is the being that kind of changes its form depending on the transition that it's called for. It's there to kind of usher uh, people or, or an era into a new way of being. And I think that grief is such an enzyme. It is such a metabolism. Um, and, it, and, and as an enzyme and, and with this language of metabolism, I really believe that it's something that's deeply grounded in our body. Um, in our physical body and then actually beyond the death of our physical bodies I think it's something that exists between us and among us um, and its processing can be can, can be uh, channeled through our bodies and by listening to our bodies I really believe that we are able to metabolize our losses in ways that um, is both necessary and responsible Thank you. That's really, really interesting. And uh, reading your essay, Grief is a Shapeshifter, one part of it stood out for me in particular. And if I may quote from that, you wrote that grief only sometimes looks like tears on a long face. So often it doesn't look like anything at all. It stays tucked behind our eyes, between our teeth or in the folds of our skin. It's in our gut and blood and breath. So when people say, let it go, I don't really know where it could go. So again, there, that really kind of emphasizes the embodied aspect or nature of grief. Uh, so Michael, if I may come back to you here, one of the things you emphasize in your book is that you, you, you characterize grief as about how our minds relate to the wine, wider world. And you sort of talk about it as a, as a psychological phenomenon at its core. How do you relate then to this kind of embodied discussion of grief? Well, we feel emotion in and through the body, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, when people talk about the emotions that are uh, most common in grief, uh, we actually, you know, refer, right? I don't think entirely metaphorically to to our bodies. We, we say we have a heavy heart, uh, you know, we have an anxious gut, you know, we, uh, you know, the kinds of emotions that I think are characteristic of grief are very much, um, you know, located with, within the body. And I think, you know, to, to echo something I was saying earlier, 
you know, the idea that grief is very often an experience of a kind of, you know, alienation or strangeness in the world. It's very interesting to note that uh, C.S. Lewis, right, the famous uh, Christian philosopher and theologian, you know, in his grief memoir, A Grief Observed, you know, mm. uh, talks about not recognizing his own body, right, sort of, you know, experience his own body as if it were a sort of foreign and strange presence in his consciousness. So I, I definitely think that there is a, a very strong uh, embodied dimension to our grief experience, for sure. Thank you. Well, would you like to come in here? Oh, yes. Yes, I would. Um, yeah, I mean, I have been tempted to try to say what I think grief is, um, like the others. And uh, two, two things that I've come up with. One is I, I've written about it as the grief is the gravity of the social, by which I mean that grief seems to function in a way that the big forces in the world, like gravity, electromagnetism, seem to function. And the word itself carries this gravitas around in it. And there's something really helpful about thinking about it as a social phenomenon, as a social force that pulls us together. I also think that like finding really long compound complicated German words to describe it is helpful because <laughs> it gets at the feeling like, like grief is ungetaroundableness, you know, like it's this thing that is just so big that is unwieldy. And when I try to walk around it, it seems to extend whatever direction I go. I think all that's really important, but then at the same time, I, I think that when we start to try to define things, we draw lines around them. And then by, even if we don't mean to, we end up excluding um, certain things from consideration. And so just, you know, like a, a very basic sort of continental philosophy shift would be to sort of query the question and say, you know, not what is grief, but what does grief do? And I think that when we shift the question over to that action sense, we start to get a whole new realm of answers. Like, it mobilizes bodies in the street together. You know, it produces silence, a profound silence. It produces sounds that we didn't know bodies could make. And following all those threads out into different directions gives us the sort of, you know, a different modal understanding of what grief does or could be. Thank you. And again, in, in your wonderful essay, to grieve. A line that stood out for me was grief resides in the world outside. I wonder if you could say a little more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so I so this was sort of like a, a phenomenological study. I wrote this right in the, the weeks after my son died, and I was really attending to what I was experiencing. And something that struck me as true then and that still remains true is that I was taught to think of grief as something that I have, but in fact, it didn't seem to be that at all. It seemed to be something outside, something so big, something oceanic that comes in and actually demolishes me. And so I started thinking, well, what might it be? Well, I think it's something outside. Um, ultimately, I think that outside, inside, these are binaries that probably don't work too well because things are actually quite porous and we're all entangled and so on and so forth. But there is something really productive in thinking about grief as this oceanic force on the outside that is not mine. I don't have it. I don't experience it 
personally, it exists. Thank you. And just to go straight on to our, our second area of discussion, well, I want to ask whether there's such a thing as good grief. And, and in your essay, you ask, what does it mean to grieve rightly? So would you mind getting us started here? Yeah, I thought long and hard about whether there was a way to avoid talking about Charlie Brown with this question. And I've decided the answer is no, we should talk about Charlie Brown for one second. So, so good grief, like that's his trademark, right? And th those, those specials are on during the holiday time right now. And so they're on in my household, my kids are watching them. And there's something to be learned about, about this. Like Charlie Brown is a child, but he clearly senses the weight of the world already and like how fraught interpersonal relationship is. And so one aspect of what would be good grief comes from really watching Charlie Brown with a sort of philosophical eye and saying, wow, what if we actually, a good, a good grief might be really attending to what children are experiencing as grief right now, especially given all the problems with COVID and going back to school and what it is to learn to socialize in a masked and socially distanced environment. This is surely creating some type of grief that probably slips outside of the definitions that we've been given for. So that's my, that's my Charlie Brown this brief digression, which I think is important. But I, I think when I, I, I did write about the, the question, what does it mean to grieve rightly? And, and that was, that was partially linked in my mind to Theodora Adorno's phrase that a wrong life can't be lived rightly. And it was linked to the notion that grief is a sort of necessary component of living. And so the only way to do it wrongly would be to shut it out. Unfortunately, that's kind of what's happening at the moment. So I think society is doing it wrongly by, by sort of shutting it out. Now, years later, reflecting on it, my tendency is actually to shift from a prescriptive meaning of good to a descriptive meaning of good. And this raises a really fascinating question, which is like, what would it mean to grieve in a way that feels good? Like, is it possible that grief and feeling good can intermingle? And I think the answer is yes, it changes entirely what we understand by feeling good, but it does start to open up interesting avenues of exploration, like why we laugh so much when we're grieving, um, you know, what it feels like to sort of come back online emotionally uh, through a grief experience and how the smallest of things can have a very strong palpable sense in the body. Like just one ray of sunlight can really like tingle your entire being after grief, after being shut away inside for so long. But that's the direction that I would sort of take it now is the descriptive way of what does it feel like to grieve good? What does it, how can you feel good through your active grief? Thanks, well, Priya. Um, I would just echo a lot of what Will said actually, and especially since so much of my work is rooted in somatics and what the body notices and what the body feels. Um, yeah, this orientation towards what feels good is really interesting because I think similarly to the way that we're not necessarily encouraged to grieve well or grieve openly, we're also not really encouraged to know what feels good 
in our bodies, what rest really feels like. Um, I think we tend to be in a state of hypervigilance a lot of the time, which actually, and in my learnings, I found out that when we are in the state of hypervigilance and with a very active nervous system, our ability to actually hear one another, that the actual apparatus of the inner ear changes. So it becomes harder to hear the human voice. So I think that all of these things kind of coalesce when we think about being together as these bleeding, beating, breathing bodies amongst each other and helping each other to grieve well and help giving each other permission and giving each other witness um, to grieve well. And I think that also just coming back to something that Will said around grief is something that you have. I think another violence that's been done um, to our processes of grieving is this hyper-individualization, the sense that grief or anything is something that we possess as an individual and therefore can take away and therefore can kind of keep private or separate. Whereas actually when we tear down these that that kind of socialization, that grief is deeply relational and it only ever exists between us. To me, that seems like a form of good grieving or grieving that might feel good. Thank you. Before I go on to Michael, Will, do you want to say anything in response to or in relation to what Priya has said? I agree. I mean, I, I think that the, the last part is absolutely is, is, is fascinating terrain for conversation, which is if grief is, if we want to go back to the, what it is, if it is social, if it is relational, then we have to start looking around and asking questions like, are we fostering healthy grief relationships in this society? And maybe just in the way that like trauma informed ways of acting are now coming into vocabulary everywhere, trauma informed counseling, trauma-informed education, maybe we need to have this grief-informed inflection. Thank you. And Michael, I, I wonder if you could explain to us at this point what you say about the paradox of grief, because I think it's relevant here, isn't it? What good is there in grief? I definitely think it is relevant. Um, so the phenomenon that Sarah is pointing to, I call the paradox of grief, is just the idea that on the one hand, grief seems you know, taken in the abstract to be really pretty terrible, right? One exercise I like to give to my students is to try to sell you know, an alien species that doesn't understand grief on the desirability or goodness of grief. And I say, you know, this is a really hard sell. You know, there's, there's sadness and sometimes anger and guilt and confusion and disorientation. Uh, sometimes it kills people, right? There are, you know, there's actual medical evidence occasionally that you know, people die of, of uh, the uh, physical manifestations of grieving. Um, the uh, psychologist Holmes and Rahi have a famous scale, right, for stressful life events. And they put the grief of, uh, that one experiences at the death of one's spouse at 100, the top of their scale. And uh, you know, everything else is like 75 or lower, you know, including even like you know, your ha yourself having a brush with death is way down this list of stresses. So on the one hand, right, grief seems to be very difficult to understand as anything good, right? It just sort of on its face looks, looks pretty awful. But on the other hand, 
Um, I think when we reflect upon it, we uh, are likely to conclude that a person who doesn't grieve or who sort of actively suppresses or avoids grieving is doing him or herself a disservice, right? Is doing something that bars them from um, having a better life, a more fulfilling life, uh, maturing in a certain sort of way, developing certain kinds of uh, you know, virtues perhaps. And I think the best example that, that I can offer here is um, the protagonist of uh, uh, Merceau's uh, novella, The Stranger, right? Merceau, who, who doesn't grieve, right? I mean, he doesn't look like somebody that uh, we would think is is blessed, right, for not grieving. He seems to rather be someone that we kind of pity, right, for, for his inability to grieve. So I think there's a deep and profound question here about how to understand uh, the relationship between uh, the apparently terrible features of grieving and whatever it is, right, that might make grief nevertheless uh, worthwhile. And so I think it is, it is a profound and deep puzzle. And in terms of, you know, what Will and I think Priya were both interested in, um, you know, the feeling, right, of feeling good, right? Can grief feel good? I actually think um, that uh, one remarkable thing about grief is that sometimes in the midst of it, people seek out, right, some of the most painful parts of it, right? People actually seek out, you know, um, uh, the very sort of suffering, right, that seems to be uh, the worst aspect of it in some ways, right? People actively go to grave sites and look at the mementos from their, from their dead loved ones and so on. And what I actually think is that they're seeking out pain that they think is good. And the puzzle is to try to understand how it is that pain can be good. Yeah, well, please. Yeah, I mean, that last that last question is one that I think about a lot. And one direction I would point for that is the prevalence of tattooing in the wake of people's griefs. Um, I've I get tattoos. I also think about this, which is that it's it's I call it a careful pain because it's a sort of like there's an artist at work who's doing something that's going to inscribe a memento of your loss uh, on your body somewhere. And it hurts but it is finite. There's a transformational quality to it. It borders on, if not is a ritual clearly. And that pain actually falls outside of any kind of good, bad binary, which is actually very typical in grief. All binaries start to fall away. And instead you find this new register of feelings where things are easily baffled. So their pain is neither good nor bad. It's something careful. It's full of care. It cultivates care. Yeah, that's really fascinating. There's there's something as well, isn't there, about the ways in which the kind of intensity of the pain around grief helps you feel or retain a connection to the person who's been lost. So that when that that feeling starts to wane, that intensity starts to wane, it's as though the connection with that person, with that life, with that um, that relationship is is itself waning. Priya, I wonder if you want to say any more about good grief. Um, just picking up on what's been said so far and about the pain of it. Um, I think that these things are so often painful. I mean, love is really painful sometimes. Love and grief um, are two sides of the same coin or probably the same side of the same coin. Um, and within these, again, within these binary paradigms, it's easy to kind of put 
pain into a category of bad and something that you push away. But actually, when we look at it through a paradigm of metabolism or through even through brokenheartedness, that there's this image of something that's cracked open and has become porous and has become ready to give and ready to receive. I think that that imagery can be really useful when we talk about this kind of pain, because in my experiences of grief, your heart kind of breaks for, for these different reasons. It's not just the loss of a person, but suddenly somehow all of the losses of the world seem to affect you a lot more, or you're almost crying for everything and everyone that you've ever known or ever lost or ever loved. Um, so yeah, I think that this orientation towards kind of porosity uh, really helps when we think about pain and its ebbs and flows. Thank you. And I'm going to take this moment to open up the third part of our conversation. So of course, we're discussing this during the pandemic. And I wonder if we can reflect on any ways in which the pandemic has complicated grieving or interacted with grief. And Priya, I'll start with you here. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's, it feels like such a unifying experience in some ways that, I mean, we can say the pandemic and everyone knows what we mean, but at the same time, everyone's had such different experiences across, across the globe uh, with what they've experienced. And it hasn't just been the virus that they've been trying to um, protect themselves from. It's been through war, through famine, through poverty, austerity, police brutality. These things have, out, have, have predated the pandemic that we are currently going through, the pandemic that we currently name. Um, but kind of like the, the grief layers, and especially when there isn't a public recognition of that pain, of that grief, it becomes calcified um, and it really creates these kind of like cultures and, and societies of stagnation. I, and I really believe that. And this is, it's something that is kind of done in an intentional way. And I have this um, quote from Judith Butler that keeps haunting me, which is uh, what counts as a livable life and a grievable death. And I think that the idea of ungrievable lives has been constructed for centuries, for thousands of years, to be able to inflict violence onto another, to be able to kind of take away the possibility of grief from someone or from a population is to make uh, their dying easier or more palpable. Um, and yeah, so I think that, that the pandemic has kind of put a lot of these things into sharper focus. And the fact that a lot of the pain that we're feeling was actually always already there. And what we're feeling now is, is building on that, or it's kind of peeling the layers back on some of that. And I think it's also shed some light on our capacities for inventiveness, because I think in moments of pain, in moments of grief, we find ways to be able to come together 
we we look for ways and we desperately seek out ways to be able to come together and a couple of months ago my grandmother passed away and um we have a little front garden and over the course of like the the prayers that we held for her um for her passing we kind of had meals and it was it was in the summer so it was a little bit sunny and we were sitting outside my grandparents had lived on this street for 50 years and there were neighbors who were kind of just passing who just came through ate with us and there were moments of joy that existed within and between the grief that was ongoing and is still ongoing and I did I thought that, that was an incredible example of the ways in which we are resilient and, and resolute in how we choose to seek out uh, communion and coming coming together uh, to grieve um, and, it, and it's a particularly difficult time right now because living feels particularly lonely and dying feels particularly public. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm holding multiple crises, I think. And to remember that all our crises are connected, all our grief is always connected, kind of helps me to move towards a place of collective um, grieving. Thank you very much, Priya. And Michael, can I bring you in here, your reflections on grieving in the pandemic? Well, let me mention two themes, one of which I think Priya uh, mentioned as well. I think it's going to be extremely interesting, fascinating even, to see how uh, different societies, different communities commemorate or memorialize those who have died of COVID. It's interesting to note that during the last similarly uh, grand <laughs> global pandemic, right, the, the flu epidemic of 1918, uh, the number of uh, you know, placards and other sorts of commemorative objects for that particular uh, event is very small, right? Fewer than five in the world, despite the fact that uh, 50 million people were killed in the flu epidemic as compared to 20 million who were killed in World War I, which was coming to an end at, at that time. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how societies try to remember, right, um, the COVID epidemic and, and those who were killed by it. I think it raises really interesting questions of how we uh, collectively create memory, particularly when uh, you know, the deaths kind of fall outside the, the usual pattern right, of the deaths that societies commemorate. You know, we're not commemorating the deaths of, of war heroes. You know, almost everyone who died was you know, not a war hero, just a sort of average ordinary person. So I think it's gonna be interesting to see what societies do to memorialize and remember uh, these dead. Um, but the other thing I wanted to mention was that I think how we grieve uh, is often quite dependent upon our expectations about how others will die and also our expectations about what kinds of rituals and opportunities will be available to us as we grieve. So when you think about uh, those who died uh, via COVID, the trajectories of their deaths are quite different from the kinds of deaths that are typical in contemporary societies, right? In most contemporary societies, 
people die primarily of, of chronic illnesses, right? That sort of slowly, uh, you know, eat away at them over months and years and so forth. Whereas with COVID, right, the average time from diagnosis to, to death is, is less than three weeks. So people are dying in a way that's very rapid in comparison with their expectations. And of course, they're dying in settings that are probably at odds with people's expectations, settings where uh, you can't be in physical contact with uh, the dying person because of uh, the infectious nature of the illness. And then, of course, when they do die, um, you know, I think a lot of us notice that, that the rituals surrounding uh, grief and mourning that we might uh, expect or we're accustomed to were not available to us. You know, uh, many funeral homes became experts in the Zoom funeral um, and certain kinds of rituals that certain um, certain societies or communities depend upon. For example, the washing of bodies was simply not available um, to people. And, uh, you know, my favorite example of this sort is it, uh, the New Orleans jazz funeral, right, where a body is carried through the streets and, and music is played and so forth. And that was, you know, prohibited for a time um, in the early days of the epidemic. And I think in some ways, these kinds of um, deprivations, right, of the opportunity to be with the deceased, the opportunity to engage in the rituals that one was anticipating um, one would have around that person's death and subsequent to their death, they kind of compound, right, the suffering uh, of their deaths. And I think it's a kind of, uh, if you will, kind of large-scale grief injustice that was done to people somewhat inadvertently um, in, the course of, uh, in the course of the pandemic. Thank you, Michael. That's really interesting. Grief, injustice. If I may ask, I mean, this is a very difficult question, but why are those rituals so important to us at times of grieving? Well, I think grieving um, often is channeled through rituals, mm. in part because I think we're looking for cues, right, to sort of help us bring emotions to the surface, right, to elicit certain kinds of emotions, um, both individually and collectively, right? So, you know, I think most of us have some idea of what it's like to, you know, attend a funeral in, you know, contemporary Western societies and kind of know what is likely to be said and, you know, what kinds of, uh, you know, events are going to be part of, of this um, sequence of events that is the funeral. Uh, it's kind of like the once upon a time effect, right? When you when you hear that phrase once upon a time, you kind of know what you're going to hear is, you know, a, a narrative, a fictional story. Um, and I think what happens is when we're deprived of these rituals, we kind of are deprived of these emotional stimuli, right? That enable us to, to process our grief, to bring it to the forefront, um, both at the individual level, but also when we're when we're mourning, right? When we're grieving with others. Thank you. Well, there's a lot of fascinating ideas on the table there. I mean, regarding ritual, I think, I think I just want to say I, the image that I always get of rituals is that they are different size containers. They, they hold energy in different way faced with grief. It feels like you're really like nose to nose with the chaos of the universe. And so when we look for a way to contain either ourselves or that chaos, again, into some sort of shape that we recognize and ritual forms really help us to do that. And the valid question is whether or not those forms will continue to help um, when faced with a, a scale of this global pandemic. That's a, it's an interesting question, but I think in general, rituals are, are like that. They help us shape the experience, hold it in a certain way. Um, well, you know, my sample size, of course, for, for answering a question like this is very small, um, but, you know, based on what I've seen, 
in people's response to the pandemic and heard and worked with people in grief workshops and, out, and students, a lot of students, is the surprising amount of people who have said, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I've slowed down. And that has caused me to question everything that I'm doing. And that is a huge component of the grief pandemic relation. I think when we live in a society that pushes constant productivity, one of the things that you're not encouraged to do is to actually think about anything, much less think about how you're feeling about things. But here, all of a sudden, people have been forced to stop and think about it, maybe for the first time. And that is opening the floodgates and letting in all sorts of fascinating opportunities, but also obstacles. The thing that I always think about, I mean, I don't know why I think about it this way, but I think about it as like the Robinson Crusoe effect. Here you have a story of a person who gets shipwrecked, has an opportunity to do something completely different, but instead what he does is reproduce capitalist society exactly. He starts like stocking objects and counting how many there are and setting up like his is is old world in this new island world. And that's the thing that people are going to face here. They're going to have this shipwreck upon them. And then as we get back to quote unquote normal, and as keep, people keep trying to sell us on the idea that there is a normal, people are going to have to make a choice about whether or not they're going to reconstruct or attempt a reconstruction of precisely the life they led before, or if something else awaits. And that is a fertile ground that I think causes as much anxiety as it does excitement. Thank you. And just to come back to Priya, you talked about how one of the reasons why grieving in the pandemic is so difficult is that there hasn't been proper public recognition of it. So similar to the question about ritual, why is that recognition, that public recognition so important for grieving? I think it just helps you realize that it's real that these feelings that you can't necessarily put words to that you don't necessarily have anyone around to be able to talk to that you haven't necessarily you haven't necessarily lost any one person but you're feeling this general heaviness that you know other people might be feeling but you're not quite sure I think when it's publicly kind of recognized it becomes something that stitches us together um, and when we are able to look at it, we're, we're able to kind of like look at it within ourselves. Um, and also, I just wanted to to add actually onto what's been what's been spoken about in terms of the deprivation of rituals. Um, but this is something that's been done throughout history. There are people whose rituals and whose knowledge has been systematically destroyed, which is a grief in and of itself that there's the loss of identity um, that has existed and primarily thinking through colonialism where it was a systematic uh, epistemicide where people's epistemologies and ways of collecting and um, distributing knowledge were destroyed. Those lineages were absolutely cut and with that rituals and ways of being able to grieve these in these things that had been passed down for generations were suddenly cut and even if it wasn't broken through a, a kind of like a visceral violence just even separation causes a lot to be lost 
So I think that if we find ourselves in these kind of like towns and cities where we all come from different places, but we often feel very detached from our own ancestral rituals to be able to process death or things passing. And rituals are often kind of there to help us integrate some, something. They, they kind of create a container, as Will said, to kind of integrate our losses. And these aren't necessarily like just the like physical deaths. There are so many rituals around adolescence. It's almost to grieve a childhood and then to move on to another transition of life and to be able to kind of name it and hold it and process it and allow for a space of integration and movement is to kind of hold it with, with reverence um, and to give it the, the time and the power that it deserves. Um, and also to call others into that witnessing that actually this is this is public and we all need to do this. And I'm when I do this, I hope you can hold this for me. When you're doing this, I'll hold it for you. Um, and yeah, I think that that is a sense that we we lack at the moment. Thank you so much. Priya, Well, and Michael, and we're getting questions thick and fast from our audience. So I'd love to bring them in now. And the first question that I'm going to focus on comes from Laura Carlo-Malika, who's the co-organizer of this event. And Laura asks the panel how they think about the relationship between grief associated with the loss of an individual person and what is known as ecological grief. And that's obviously a very topical question as we come out of COP26. So I wonder, do any of our panel want to get us started with that one? May I go to you, Priya? Yeah, sure, unless Will and Michael had anything on the tip of their tongue. Um, yeah, I mean, this idea of ecological grief and its feeling among us is, again, I can only echo in some ways what, what has already been said and what I've already said is that it's this general heaviness and an impending doom. It, that's what it feels like. And often it kind of makes me think of this sense of anticipatory grief, that we're kind of like grieving something that we haven't quite lost yet, but we know that we're going to lose. And it's almost as though we're preparing ourselves for that loss while actively grieving what has been lost. And sometimes it, it can feel so um, climate activists are working to do is to kind of bring it back to us and to bring it back to, to why it's relevant for our personal lives. It's this constant need to have to reiterate why this matters to each of us and we each have a responsibility. But I think that the sense that it seems out there and it's happening at the rate of glaciers melting is kind of like keeps it proximal. 
but there's yeah there's this impending anticipatory uh sense of grief that we're all collectively moving towards I feel thank you well um I mean the phrase that comes up for me is we don't know what we've lost um you know we don't even have an idea of the future that or the futures that have been destroyed because of the damage done to the planet in various ways. I mean, it's like thinking of if we take, you know, all the great work that's being done out there in like plant, critical plant studies or all the, the fascination with fungal networks and mushrooms that really show us how things are interrelated. It's like perhaps we've sensed on some level these interconnections, but they haven't come to our conscious sort of linguistic understanding yet. And they won't because certain things have died or been killed off or made extinct. And so we have a feeling that something is gone, but we don't even know what it is. And that's an unplaceable, unputtable, unstorable feeling that's very, very difficult to wrap your mind around. Thank you. I'll bring in Michael in a second, but I, I also wanted to involve Inara and her question on uh, death anxiety. So Inara says, I feel as if I grieve far before grieving is meant to happen. I grieve the fact that my grandparents or parents will one day die. The fact that one day I will no longer exist or experience the world, experience the subjective perspective of someone that exists. How should we approach this kind of realization that seems to stop us in our tracks sometimes and takes over our lives far before the deaths of our loved ones we fear happen, we so fear to happen? So I wonder, Michael, if you could take that on as well. Uh, I'll do my best. I, I was just going to add to uh, to uh, Priya and Will's remarks about uh, ecological grief. I think one of the things that makes this species of grief, and I would count uh, COVID-related uh, collective grief in this category as well, one thing that makes it particularly challenging is that we sort of don't really have a sense of what the end point is, right? So Priya, I think it was right to say that you know, a lot of what people are experiencing as, as ecological grief is anticipatory, right? Sort of, you know, grieving in anticipation of certain calamities and so on. Um, but when you think about the pandemic, I think one of the things that has made griefs uh, more challenging there is just that, you know, it's not sort of obvious what the finish line is, right? And we've, we've had, you know, diminishing, uh, you know, infections and deaths, and then they go back up and you know, they go back down again. And sort of, I think that that puts us very much on a kind of, you know, grief roller coaster, you know, oscillating and so forth. And I suspect that with ecological grief, it's something like that too, right? We don't even quite know what the end point is. I mean, one, one good thing about anticipatory grief um, in the usual cases, right, where we're talking about the death of an individual, is that at some point it will be transformed into just plain grief, right? The person dies, right? There's sort of in point at least to that aspect of it. Um, but to the question uh, that was that was just put from, from um, the audience here, I mean, I think one of the most important tasks we can undertake as human beings is to um, prepare ourselves, right? For, uh, you know, the prospect of our own deaths and to figure out how to live with the mortality of, of other people and the vulnerability of, of the things that we care about. Um, 
So, you know, the, the questioner seems to be uh, someone with a, a sort of psychological attachment maybe to, to uh, this fact. And I think that it's, it's all well and good for us to be uh, cognizant of it. On the other hand, um, there is the danger, I guess, that um, being attached to that might serve to um, disable, right, our ability to sort of be in the moment, right, and to be with the living, right? Um, you know, I, I generally tell my students when I teach philosophy of death and dying that I don't think we should live in the shadow of death. I think we should live in the light of it. And uh, I think it's important to both be cognizant of, again, the vulnerability of ourselves and, and of the things and people that we care about, but also to not permit that to be so pervasive that it sort of diminishes our ability to um, enjoy the goods, right, of those things and people, you know, as they are in the moment. Thank you, Michael. Well. I think that second question is so perfect for this forum because one of the answers is <laughs> study philosophy. Like the, the um, you know, the, I think, the classical, the classical Greek maxim that's been revived by other people from different traditions. Like I'm thinking of Cornell West, but one of the questions is like, you know, are you prepared to die in your life? What does it mean to die in life? Multiple times. That's, I mean, that's a lot of what philosophy was preparing people to do. It sounds like an abstract question at first, but then when you have one of those palpable emotional feelings that we might label as anticipatory grief about our own death or someone else's death, we recognize that we are already sort of rehearsing these various things. It takes us right back to the first question about what is grief and it's like twin, which is what is death? You know, there are lots of different kinds of death and perhaps what's being experienced in so-called anticipatory grief is actually the grieving of some version of yourself or idealized version of reality that's just not alive anymore. And that what you're doing is processing it. In which case, one of the things you can do is make a ritual to hold it, you know, like a hold a ritual in which you actively grieve by the, by yourself or with other people, this death that you are feeling in the moment. Um, and or turn to you know the philosophy books and, and artists out there who are doing philosophy through performance, for example, and, and look for how people have created these types of expressions. Thank you. I'm going to take two questions together now. So Victoria asks, how can we involve others in our grief and not keep it to ourselves? I feel like it's easier to do that at the beginning, but after a while, people may become tired or bored. And Yelise asks, in a world which constantly triggers problem solving, engaging the left side of the brain and obstructs the initiation of grief after a major loss, is there a way to kickstart it? If so, what's the best method for starting the grieving process when it's supposed to be processed, assuming it's impossible to shut down all the noise outside. So Priya, you talked about the kind of collective aspect of grief and of grieving together. I wonder if you could get us started with those. Yeah, sure. The, the, sorry, am I clear? Okay. Um, sorry, I thought I had broken off my connection. Um, yeah, what's coming to mind for me for both those questions is this kind of like craving for more spaces to be able to grieve. Mm. And I think this comes up again and again. Um, 
And even in the grief gatherings that I've hosted, what came up is the need for more, more of these. And people were that there's a hunger for it. There's a hunger to have spaces that name grief, where anyone can come. Any you don't have to you don't have to qualify your grief. You don't have to quantify it. You don't even have to name it if you don't want. You don't have to give specific examples. You're just there to be listened to and not judged. Um, and there are plenty of cultures around the world where that is where where that's done ritually. It's done regularly and it's done ritually as a form of community uh, responsibility. Um, and yeah, I, I really do think that with both of those kind of like questions, they, they, they both touch on this sense of grief being, ha having a deadline almost and, and the shame or embarrass embarrassment that might come when you are still feeling the same feelings um, and you're supposed to have been, to, to be over it. Um, and yeah, I really do think that if we have more spaces where grief can be named and held, these types of like feelings um, might have a place to go. Thank you. Well. Yeah, I mean, so the, a lot of these questions are, we, we hear this all the time, the work that my wife, Joanne and I do, um, it, it comes back to the this practice, this phrase that we have of creative grief practice, which is that we really understand grief as this thing. It does not end. It's something that you integrate into your life. And it is possible to cultivate a sustainable, long-lasting, enriching grief practice that evolves with you as you age. I think one of the, the problems with, um, grief as it's normally packaged and sold to us is that it's only given a finite quantity. Like you're only supposed to grieve publicly for this amount of time. You're only supposed to take this much time off of work and then you're supposed to be over it. And every, I mean, we all know that's just not how it actually works. The question is, what do we do when the social structures don't allow for us to sort of publicly talk about it anymore? The answer is, is that you yourself have the opportunity to make something of your grief and likely what you're gonna make is going to contribute to your overall artistic sense of you, of your performance of everyday life. So there is this fascinating, really healthy thing that happens when we integrate grief into our daily performance of everyday life. And that's what I really advocate for, for, for people. That's really helpful, thank you. Now I'm going to, put a question to Michael and Michael of course feel free to come back to the previous questions as well we have a question from Zofia should we try to grieve in the way the people whom we are grieving would have wanted us to so do we have responsibilities to to the people we are grieving to grieve in the way that they would have wanted us to that's an excellent question so it's interesting to note that one of the things that people do in wills and other documents is lay out uh, the rituals that they want to uh, see materialize related to their own deaths. Um, and it's interesting to reflect on what kinds of values and concerns are um, at play there. I guess my own view is that we should honor those wishes, that in fact, there's a way in which you can wrong the dead if you don't honor these wishes uh, to the extent that it's possible and feasible to do so. 
But at the same time, I think it's important that um, while we can honor the wishes of the dead, we should not, should not also be tyrannized by them. And in particular, with respect to our to our own grieving, um, you know, Will and, and Priya were, were earlier suggesting, you know, grief is not something that we possess exactly. But on the other hand, it is something that happens to us as individuals. And I think it's entirely within our rights to decide that, uh, you know, grief needs to unfold according to the rhythm and patterns that suit my relationship with the deceased and its significance um, that my relationship with the deceased had for me. If I can, I'd like to resist ever so slightly, very, very gently, I think some of the um, suggestions that were made earlier about uh, sort of spaces and, and public dialogue and so forth. I think when you look at the um, empirical literature from the mental health professions about things like grief counseling and the expression of, of grief in support groups and so forth. The evidence is actually not that strong that, you know, explaining, elaborating, articulating your grief to others is necessarily particularly helpful to people. And there's also a somewhat gendered dimension to this. It seems to be more helpful to women than it is to men as, as a general rule. And that having the permission to grieve is not necessarily uh, should not be equated with sort of the permission to grieve in public or in ways that involve uh, other people perceiving uh, your grief in ways that might offend against your own sense of, of intimacy or ownership over your own grief. I think people can grieve healthfully and, and well uh, through a variety of different kinds of, of methods. So I think there are definitely some for whom, you know, uh, a more public approach is, is the right sort of approach. But I think for many people, um, uh, particularly men, perhaps, um, their grieving more in private might be the right way for them. So, Thank you. I'm going to give Will and Priya a, a chance to re reply. Um, and after that, I'm going to go to a question from Nico. So, Will. Um, I'm studying to become a clinical mental health counselor right now. And... Um, one of the, the problems with the empirical research that shows things like what Michael's just saying is that they, up until like the 90s, really were talking about white middle, middle class people. Um, and that's why in the 90s, when the multicultural competencies were started to be developed for counselors, it sort of showed all these different directions and made people realize that like, for example, what was defined as grief was actually being defined as grief only for one subgroup of people um, it, it kind of, it troubles a lot of those findings, I think. And it just puts us back into the conversation about what might grief look like um, if we allow the hard and fast definitions that circulate most frequently to fall away for a little bit. Um, and I think, again, things like protests, um, things like, um, yeah, other forms of public ceremony that usually don't fall in the public eye or get covered, that's worth, uh, you know, folding into the empirical data. Well, actually, in that case, I should bring in Nico's question because it's exactly on, on this. And then I'll, I'll come to you, uh, Priya, to, to engage in, in, in these issues. So Nico says, I think this conversation could benefit from questions addressing race and gender-based grief rather than this universalized approach that touches on race with pieces like discussing New Orleans rituals, but centers those rituals as universalized we. Could the inability of Western media and society's inability to deal with COVID deaths be cultural? and based in white supremacist hegemony that, that has reluctance to address black and brown death, poor death, incarcerated death, 
and those generally of underclasses. So I wonder who wants to come in here. I don't mind starting um, because I think it's a really important question. It's something that I've tried to weave in actually um, in my responses so far, um, but I'll be more explicit. And I think that again, coming back to Judith Butler's livable life and a grievable death is a question of dehumanization and systematic dehumanization, that there are lives that are seen as unworthy of proper ritual that are unworthy of proper mourning and it makes their deaths kind of like easier to digest easier to ignore actually probably that I don't think there is any digestion it makes it easier to ignore and um, one example actually that I have of this is that one of the grief gatherings that I facilitated was the day after Remembrance Day. Um, and one of the participants kind of just shared that, well, I, I don't know that they, I don't know who they're remembering because they're not remembering my ancestors who died. They're remembering a very specific type of citizen or national subject that deserves a certain heroism and um, memorial. Um, and everything else kind of falls away from that. And it's this, I think it's a continual unsystematic uh, orientation towards oppression. And in Nico's question, they uh, kind of mention uh, white supremacy. And I think that that's tied to, again, these epistemicides that I've mentioned, that there are these ongoing ways that um, oppression kind of, permeates our souls and our knowledge systems um, by kind of ridding us of our, our roots and our connections to our ancestral um, traditions. Um, and yeah, I think that also that there's plenty of uh, example as well of how, and I mean, I know that Will had mentioned this in terms of protests as being kind of like a form of, of public mourning. I, and I agree, I think even on a somatic level, kind of raising our voices together, stamping our feet and kind of marching is also a way to kind of let the body kind of shake some of the pent up anger and rage that is often at the heart of our grief, um, which we've seen particularly over the last year, over the last few years and over, across many years before that. Um, there's lo also lots of examples of the way that HIV has been, um, and, and, and has been mourned publicly, and where the, there's been kind of a, a demand for public recognition that, that these people died. Um, and you, you, you need to, witness their bodies and witness who um, kind of has, has contributed to their, um, so I think that these, these questions around race and gender inscribed into our bodies and um, ungrieved is really important. Thank you, Priya. Michael. I was just going to add 
that I do think this uh, notion that has emerged in uh, the grief literature over the past, I guess, I don't know, 20 years or so of disenfranchised grief is a very powerful way of thinking about the phenomenon that we're talking about, right? Grief whose recognition um, uh, has been denied to people. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about uh, going back again to some of the things I was saying earlier about the ways in which, you know, the pandemic inhibited the rituals that people uh, might otherwise pursue in the course of grieving. It's interesting to think about whether uh, grief and the public recognition of grief should be classified as a human right. Um, I've actually toyed with that idea myself that um, just as we have, I think, come to recognize that events surrounding the beginnings of lives, births and so forth, uh, there's a human rights dimension because of the significance of, of life's beginnings. I think there may well be a human rights dimension uh, concerning ends of lives. And uh, it might be interesting to think about um, whether there is right a human right to to grieve and to be recognized as as grieving, and what that might mean concretely in terms of what societies owe to to grieving people, um, both culturally and materially. Thank you. Will, did you want to come in on this? Yeah, I, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of all the things that I learned recently um, facilitating a book group project on Af and Silk Ho's book, Afroisms, about pop culture, black feminism, or feminism and black veganism. It's a book that is not written to me. Um, I'm not the intended audience. Um, I'm interested in it because of not being the intended audience. I was interested in how the discussion of veganism and black veganism really my understanding of grief to the realm of the non-human animal and what does that have to do exactly with racism and how am I implicated in all of this what was really interesting through reading that book was that the techniques that the sisters writing it came back to are the techniques of critical theory I mean they are insistent that like we cannot you cannot use a white philosophical map to travel through a black feminist territory like that doing that is ridiculous that uh, black thought must be encouraged and given space to produce maps of their own in order to do that and that's absolutely true i totally agree that and hear that and the techniques they use to do it are theory techniques um you know challenging the word that we use to build our arguments looking at the binary logic that usually subtends most of the, the belief systems in our, our arguments. And it was really a, a fascinating and impassioned call for going back to philosophy, albeit not capital P philosophy, but like philosophy understood as this method of critical inquiry, figuring out how it is we live our lives. Thank you all, thank you. I, I'm going to put another two questions to you that are uh, quite similar in tone. And these are questions about grieving for what cannot be. So Maureen asks, what about grieving for what cannot be, for example, childlessness, a lost opportunity, and so on. And Samridi asks, can we grieve for things that haven't gone the ways we wanted them to? Grieving about how life is and how it should be. The conflict between should have been and what is in life can also make us grieve in a way that encompasses both living and death. And I think that's a really interesting angle here. Not so much anticipatory grief, but grieving for the way things have gone or the way we wanted things to go, but are not going to go that way. Does anybody want to start us off here? Michael, please. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think one of the aspects of grief that's easy to overlook is that in terms of grief being a response to loss, it's not just a response to losses of what we have had or what was, but also what might have been. Um, you know, I think one of the most poignant and harrowing forms of grief that, that I've learned about or read about um, is the grief that um, people suffer when um, miscarriages occur, right? Or particularly, you know, repeated miscarriages that, that some women undergo. And the loss there is not so much about what one has had, right? It seems primarily to be about a loss of a certain kind of hope, right, that one might have had. And I think that that's, I think, critical to understanding sort of the emotional phenomenology of grief is that it is often not just a response to how things were, but how things could have been. Um, and sort of lost, lost dreams and aspirations are often a big part of the grief equation. Thank you. Priya, did you want to come in for this? Um, yeah, sure. I... Um, just listening to those questions and kind of like the there's kind of like a um a shyness around uh, like asking if it's okay to grieve things which I've noticed with a few of the questions and I mean my personal philosophy is that everything should and could be grieved um and that's not to say that we kind of exist in this spiral of sadness um, just to reorient my, this discussion for myself that um, grief is something that is incredibly dynamic and it's in service of life and it's in service of renewal and transition that anything and everything can be metabolized through grief and, and to be able to kind of sit with our own disappointments and to sit with our own kind of losses of things that we we feel like a, a real absence or a lack of in our lives, whether that's something that could have happened, should have happened, was about to happen that didn't. Um, I think being able to have moments where you can sit with that feeling, let it wash over you and then kind of process it and integrate it is really important. And again, I think that's where these regular rituals, personal grief rituals can come in. They can kind of um, provide a container for any of these things to kind of pour into um, and be metabolized. Thank you. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end our conversation. So before we go, I'd like to thank our fantastic panelists, Michael, Priya, and Will. And of course, I'd like to thank our audience for those really stimulating questions. Join us next week at the forum for a conversation about silence. Until then, thanks very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.